Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahid Khalid. And we have two very special guests joining us for Democracy-ish this week. Um, very excited to have them and to dig into a conversation that we don't often get to dig into here, which is that of Israel and Palestine. And I'm going to kick it over to Waj to do his movie phone introduction of our two esteemed guests. Joining us as a representative of all Jews forever, Peter Beinart <laughs> is the editor-at-large of Jewish Current and Beinart Notebook at Substack and professor at CUNY University. And joining us as a representative of all Palestinians forever is Rula Jabril, international author, journalist, uh, and she teaches propaganda and genocide at the University of Miami. Uh, welcome, Pipe Peter and Rula. Uh, of course, you're not the representatives of all your people, but I had to use some dark humor because we need all the humor we can get when we're talking about this subject. Um, this is a very important subject to many Americans, uh, to many people around the world. A lot of folks are watching right now what's happening in the streets uh, uh, of Israel, and they're like, huh, why are thousands of Israelis out there in the streets? What's happening with Netanyahu? How come he's the herpes of Israel? He's, <laughs> he lingers forever. What's happening with the Supreme Court? Also, why are there these extremists being more extreme with their fascism against Palestinians? Well, why is our government giving so much money? Uh, how do I make sense of all of this? So we're going to dig into all of that. But Peter, for the lay of the land, for people do, who don't follow this thing called Middle Eastern politics, can you explain to them why so many Israelis are out in the streets right now protesting in a way that Americans have not seen in years? Sure. So I think the place to start is that Israel is, for Jews, a liberal democracy. For Palestinians, it's not. For Palestinians, it's an apartheid state. Most of the Palestinians under Israeli control, those in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, can't, can't vote for the government that controls their lives. They so wait, real quick, you went there straight with the A word. I, I did, yes, because one has to understand, to understand what's happening, one has to understand that what Netanyahu is doing now is threatening Israel's liberal democratic character for Jews. And this is producing a tremendous backlash among Israeli Jews who feel like the character of the state as they experience it is being eroded. They're worried that the government is going to make Israel less secular, so there'll be more religious coercion from Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox folks. They're worried that Netanyahu, in very Trump-esque ways, is manipulating the judicial system to, so he can get away with his corruption. And they're worried that the Supreme Court, which is the only institution that balances the government in the Israeli political system, will lose some of its power. Now, the problem is that the mainstream of this protest movement so far has really been talking primarily about protecting democracy for Israeli Jews. It has not yet, although I desperately hope it will, become a movement that recognizes that democracy can never truly be secure for Jews unless democracy also exists for Palestinians as well. I, you know, eight years ago, I had the, I had the opportunity to go to Israel and Palestine on a journalist uh, trip. And I was not somebody that was steeped in Middle East politics. Um, I have I have always been on the front lines of racial justice and LGBTQ justice and equality in this country. And what struck me when I was there for a week that forever actually changed my life hmm. and changed my perspective on on Israel and Palestine, on on all of these 
this idea of democracy. Because what I saw with my own eyes was apartheid. What I saw with my own eyes was Jim Crow. And I said, how is it that the United States is giving this country billions of dollars a year to perpetuate what it is that we worked for generations to extinguish in the United States and hold up as part of the original sin of slavery? A hundred years Jim Crow existed in the United States, and we're at a moment right now where we are seeing a resurgence of white supremacist politics and the normalization of white nationalism. But that has been the way in mm. Israel. And so, Rula, I, I want to bring this question to you, which is, you know, as a Palestinian, as somebody who just you just recently went to went to Israel, we're just recently there. How have you understood, I guess, our perverted sense of democracy in America, how we justify the billions of dollars that we give to uphold a system that we've we spent a hundred plus years trying to erase in the United States? Danielle, that's a great question. And also your own experience as an African-American woman that goes to another country and see the country through your own experience, the history of this nation, go to another country. After four years, probably you heard a narrative that Israel is our closest ally. Israel yep. is uh, the only democracy in the Middle East. It's the blooming garden. There's no people, uh, land without people for people without land. All of the BS... Mm -hmm all the propaganda that was erected for decades to protect and shield Americans like you and me and Peter and Waj from seeing the reality for what it is. And anybody that would question that propaganda and those talking points and that narrative would be destroyed, literally yeah. destroyed, reputationally and career-wise, etc. But for the first time, thanks to Trump, just to be clear, and to Netanyahu and to the far-right extremists who are telling us today in their own words what is their objectives are, what their goals are. So I, you know, I grew up actually in Jerusalem and Israel under military occupation. My own family was from a city called Haifa and from Jerusalem. My mother was an Israeli citizen. I was born in Haifa, and thus I have an Israeli citizenship. My own sister, Rania, born from the same mother and father, born in Jerusalem, is not entitled to that citizenship. Mm. Think of that. The same family, same sisters, same mother and father. I go to visit my family in Haifa and the writings on the wall in a neighborhood that is a mixed, uh, you know, mixed Jews and, and Arabs living together for ever since the establishment of the state of Israel and the writings on the wall that we used to see in billboards by extremists, like, oh, we need these people to be transferred. Transfer mm. is equal to peace, meaning deportation, by the way. Expulsion. For people like myself. Exactly. Transfer. Now, the narrative in Israel is, and for years to uphold the occupation, the military dictatorship that Peter talks about was, we need to occupy these people and subjugate them because this is the only way Jews can feel safe. Today, the extremists are telling us we need a second Nakba, 
we need to erase these people and kill them, wipe them out with minister endorsing genocide and ethnic cleansing and mass violence like Smutrich, like Ben-Vir, telling us that the only way Jews can be safe if we are exterminated. This is a pivot in the conversation and in the narrative that is becoming mainstream. Mir Kahana, the extremist rabbi who was truly a gen had a genocidal vision, today his genocidal vision is mainstream, and it not only in the streets, it's in parliament, is being implemented. And I believe, and this is my personal belief, that behind this judicial coup, that they call it judicial coup, the ultimate goal is to take away the Supreme Court from any conversation about mass violence against Palestinians in the occupied territories. Bibi Netanyahu simply tried to protect himself from going to prison. But what his allies in parliament, in government, are trying to do to import that model, that authoritarian dictatorship inside Israel, and make the whole country subjugated to the same rule that Palestinians are subjugated to. They might not kill Jews in Tel Aviv. They might mm. not kill Jews in Akka, Haifa, Jaffa, around Israel, but they were trying to tell them, these are the rules, shut up or put up. Mm. If we kill Palestinians elsewhere, we don't want you to interfere. This is what's happening today in Israel. We are on the brink of a second Nakba. You know, you said, you mentioned uh, uh, terms like Nakba and, and some individuals there that, you know, just for clarification, Nakba, you know, for, for Palestinians, the creation of the state of Israel was a great catastrophe, right? Uh, the Nakba for them, uh, which has led to uh, decades of <laughs> occupation. And you mentioned people like Kahane, uh, this extremist right-wing Israeli who was at once seen as a marginal figure in Israel, but now his disciples uh, and the people who uh, believe in his, like you said, genocidal, I think, fascist views, uh, have power. Uh, one of those individuals is this guy that you mentioned, Ben Gavir, who is a national security minister under Netanyahu's government. And just this week, he is praising murderous settlers, right? And so I've been to Israel and Palestine three times, and I'm born and raised in America. I have a blue passport. I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm not Palestinian. All right. I go there, and, and, and just the absurdity of occupation. I just want to paint a, a picture for you, Peter, and, and then ask how Jews are feeling about this moment. I went there one time. I'm in Jerusalem. It's that old train station that has been converted now. You know, I think you know what I'm talking about, to like that, you know, family-friendly restaurants. And there's this uh, uh, white girl, American girl, talking to me with an American accent. And I'm like, okay, she's chatting me up. I don't know why. And I'm like, by this time I'm married, I got kids, I'm old, I have no idea when women are hitting on me, right? So uh, a, a, a Jewish woman who's from America, I'm like, I'm like, oh, she was a nice, pleasant lady. She goes, she was hitting on you. I'm like, what? I, no, she wasn't. She goes, she thought you were Jewish. Put on a yarmulke and you look Sephardic. And I'm like, isn't that hilarious? They probably, she mistook me for a Yemeni Jew, right? 10 minutes later, I'm walking back down and I'm with two hijabi women, both Americans, all of, them, all of us American citizens. Two Israeli women are crossing the street. They stop. They look at us. She says something very unpleasant. I don't need to know Hebrew to understand what I'm being cursed at. And she spits at us. And I'm like, oh, at once I was Israeli and now I've mm -hmm. become Palestinian. And throughout my trip, I was assaulted. We were kicked out of restaurants. Whenever people thought we were quote unquote Palestinian, 
we experienced very briefly how life was like uh, for a Palestinian. And you're sitting there getting pissed off because number one, you're treated like shit. And number two, as an American, I'm like, I, I'll be very blunt with you. I'm like, mother effers, I give you money. I give you taxpayer money. And I'm, yep. <laughs> I'm getting treated like crap. Like, you know, and then it makes you think about how Palestinians are. So when you come into America and you talk about this, oftentimes a third rail issue, many Jews are oftentimes on the front lines of progressive politics and, and, and you know, uh, healthcare reform and, and, and helping, you know, racial disparity in America. You said something that they're progressive on everything except Palestine. I think you called it PEP. And so here we are at this moment, Peter. You are a practicing Jew. You take your religion very seriously. You love Israel. With what's happening with Israel right now, as it's staring us in the face, how, are, how do you think your community in America is dealing with this moment, with the rise of what seems to me is Jewish fascism that is eroding the democratic character of Israel? And I know I gave you a lot. No, there's a lot. And I also just wanted to just briefly say, I think just when Palestinians talk about the Nakba, it's not just that Israel was created. It's that yeah. in the process of that creation, roughly 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes. Yeah. And those expulsions have continued since then. So um, it's not just that like Palestinians hate it any time that anything goes well for Jews. It's that this experience was an absolute catastrophe for so many people. As Rula you know, knows better than me, there's virtually not a Palestinian family whose family has not been torn apart to some degree by that expulsion or the expulsion. An ongoing continues. living catastrophe. Yes. Um, I, the the, the Amer American Jews are, are divided. No, no community is, is a monolith. And I think there are essentially, to be really, really kind of crude about it, two different kinds of narratives. One narrative says that given the history of anti-Semitism, culminating in the Holocaust, Jews essentially have to look out for themselves. Mm. And that means that Jews need a country where Jews have supremacy, where Jews are in charge, period. And if that sucks for Palestinians, it sucks for Palestinians. The world is a really, really harsh place, and this is the way to keep Jews safe. Now, that language is viscerally, especially for older Jews, uh, Jews American Jews, and especially for more religious uh, Orthodox American Jews, that there is a visceral power to that narrative. Mm. The problem is, it's a language without morality. And if you buy into the idea that, 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 mor that morality, that human rights, that human dignity doesn't matter, I don't think that's a good world for Jews. I actually think it's a world in which we ultimately are much less safe. For how do you even denounce anti-Semitism if you don't have a language about the inherent value of human dignity for all people? The argument that I would make in response, and I think thankfully is growing, especially among younger American Jews, is that we are in a global struggle. Mm. The struggle is between two visions of nationhood. One in which, in which all people are treated equally with equal human worth in the countries in which they live, irrespective of their religions or ethnicities. Or race. That's the struggle we're engaged in in the United States. The other vision is that every country is the property of one tribe. And if you're not of that dominant tribe, you're not of the right race, religion, ethnicity, you either get out or you better be on your best behavior because you're not equal. Mm. And the problem with defending Israel, while trying to be on try, trying to be a progressive in the United States, is that you are at war with yourself. Mm. 
Mm. Because mm. you're fighting against Donald Trump, but Donald Trump's vision is essentially the same vision of ethno-nationalism that, that Benjamin Netanyahu and Viktor Orban are promoting and, and, and Georgia Maloney are promoting and Narendra Modi are promoting. And you know what? Any, everywhere around the world except for Israel, those visions of ethno-nationalism are very dangerous for diaspora Jews. And I believe ultimately they are even dangerous in Israel itself because these are two communities that live that are neighbors, that are deeply intertwined. If you inflict massive violence upon people, again, we know this from our own country, the violence, the structural violence of oppression that you inflict on others, sooner or later, one way or another, comes back to you. The only way in which you have security and peace in the long run, in Israel-Palestine, in the United States, anywhere else, is for your neighbors of a different race, ethnicity, religion, gender, to have it as well. And that's the argument that some of us are making inside our community. May I add something to Peter? Yes. When, when the founding father of Israel established the state, in the Declaration of Independence itself, they talked about equal rights for all citizens, regardless religion, race, whatever. Today, the people who are in, importing or enacting ethno-nationalism, which is basically was the basis for Putin to invade Ukraine, if you think about it. They, are, they cannot be Ukrainian. They are Russians, and we need to erase their identity, and we'll do whatever it takes. We'll kill them, rape them, annex them, whatever. So the world, we are also American Jews, and Americans in general are faced with also with this threat of ethno-nationals are willing to occupy, annex, erase, cancel, unleash violence against others, are being asked today to support Ukraine. The same people are telling us, well, you know, they're taking Democrats and progressive Democrats on APAC trips to Israel to say, we support you regardless of whatever you do, knowing very well that what they are telling us, this Knesset and this government, what they're trying to do is to make apartheid official, formal, legal. I want to remind everybody that slavery in America was legal. The Holocaust itself was legal. Apartheid in South Africa was legal. Legality is not a matter of justice or morality. It's a matter of power. Mm. And today to say that whatever is Bibi is doing is legal, it actually it's a slap in the face of all these people who died. The founding father of Israel, who actually believed that the only way Jews can be saved is to build a multi-ethnic, multiracial democracy. Yes. You know, they might not have thought of it clearly, but they knew that Jews were expelled from Europe and, and, and killed and murdered because somebody else thought that these people don't belong here. And thus their, 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 their presence is an existential threat to the identity of Italy or Germany and others. And those are the same people who support Bibi Netanyahu today, Georgia Maloney, Viktor Orban, Donald Trump. I mean, it's the perverse history backward. You know, what What gets me at the core of all of this is when we look at the Israel and Palestinian conflict, and I look at it through the lens, like I said earlier, as a Black queer woman in the United States, and look through the lens of white and Black, is that the reason why we have policies in the United States that work to oppress Black people is because of how Black people have been characterized mm. as criminals, as dangerous, right? As people to be put down, mm. right? The reason why you can't 
even attempt to roll through a stop sign if you're a black person in the United States and not have your car riddled with bullets is because cops and white people in America have been acculturated to believe that we are dangerous by virtue of just living inside of our skin. When I went to Israel and Palestine and I said, these people are not allowed to access guns. They're not allowed freedom of movement, right? They basically have rocks and sticks to defend themselves against um, arsenals of attacks, right? And I think to myself, why? Oh, because an entire religion has been demonized to be terrorists. And if I don't put my foot on these people's necks, right, to Peter's point, then they are going to turn around and put their foot on my neck. What this is to me is about a disruption of a narrative that we have all been force-fed for, for, uh, and indoctrinated with since birth. And I'm just asking the both of you, and, and either one of you can go first, which is how do you disrupt the narrative? Because I had to make a trip that was like 19 hours, right? To go to this place to see it with my own eyes. 330 million Americans are not going to do that. But our fucking tax dollars make a trip every year over there to fund something that we go out into the streets for and protest here. So what does narrative disruption look like when indoctrination is so strong? It's a great question. I, I mean, I teach uh, this course titled Propaganda and Persuasion and Genocide. And every, and, and you, you, you have to go just to any Holocaust museum to see this writing on, 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 on the walls. Uh, the Holocaust did not start with a killing. It started with words. I mean, the whole narrative about that now, you know, extremists in Israel are, are, are not only embracing, trying to implement that we are an existential threat to their existence, and thus we need to be wiped out, where you have the spokesperson of a lawmaker go and kill somebody, and he's immediately released, immediately released under house arrest. If I, as an Israeli citizen, dare to insult or, or, or even, you know, answer back on a soldier, I will be in jail forever. I mean, I'm the only... I think it happens to a lot of Palestinian Israel. It's the only country in the world where people like myself go to visit their own family. We're asked the reason of our trip. I'm like, why you are here? What's what's the reason of your trip? Like, have ever any American citizen was asked at the border, what's the reason of him coming back home or to his country? And I asked the woman in the last trip. I said, you know, I'm 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 here for a funeral. She said, can you prove that somebody died? I was like, excuse me, I beg your pardon. And that was like two weeks ago. I said. I, I, I'm confused. You want me to prove that my aunt died, that I'm here for her funeral? I'm a citizen. It doesn't matter because in Israel, our ethnicity and our religion, our race, trump our citizenship and trump democracy itself. And Americans are, be, you know, the U.S. government and those Democrats are complicit in our oppression. This is how the world view it. This is how we view it. And you're you know, you're you're funding our oppression and oppression mm -hmm. and ultimately our extermination. Because when when Hakeem Jeffrey visit the country days after villages are wiped out and burned down and and, and minister glorifying this and another minister uh, take away the money from education because it goes to Arab school or Palestinian Israeli schools. 
and divert all of that funding somewhere else. This is apartheid in action. And Hakeem Jeffrey and Democrats are smiling in buses saying, this is the greatest democracy. This is the best thing in the world. These clips and these videos are traveling around the world in real time through WhatsApp or social media. In the same time, other clips are traveling, which is the burning of villages, the wiping of villages, discourses in Knesset where ministers are endorsing that kind of genocide and glorifying it and, and not only endorsing it, inviting others mm -hmm. to, to kill thousands of Palestinians where Bing Beer, you know, we, I have videos coming from around the Arab world in real time, in the morning, when I wake up, I have these Facebook or, or WhatsApp groups. It's like, did you see what this guy said? But did you see what Hakeem Jeffries said? And they compare the two things. And this is where America lose its own credibility. Because you cannot go to other countries and say, you need to fight Putin because he's occupying and annexing another nation and trying to impose his own ethno-nationalism or fascism on Ukrainian. And at the same time, you go to them and say, you need to normalize with Israel because we need you to normalize with, because this is good for us politically and ignore their human rights. We will sell you some weapons and you will be fine. These are two visions are not compatible and they will come back to hunt America itself because this is what Trump tried to implement here. These things are connected. If you think that ethno-nationalists, the fascists in America are not looking at Israel thinking, we need to bring this home. Mm -hmm. well, they're so you can't fund it overseas mm -hmm. and then try to say, oh, we can't have this here. Then you can't have it for Palestinian. Why should Palestinian accept this when you're an unwilling to accept it in America? If I can, if I can just add that. The, 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 I think if American policy towards Israel is going to change, it's going to be led by people who see America differently. Because America, remember, I mean, if you drive through the United States, one of the things, especially if you know, the, if you know, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, one of the things you'll notice is how many cities in the United States you see, you, you Bethlehem, Hebron, mm. Canaan, uh, Rehoboth. Or, um, you see again, America was founded to be a kind of new Israel, a, a, a country that was built on a hostile frontier based on a religious vision that was perceived as liberation for the people who were coming, but for the people who were already there was yep. something very different than liberation. So the association of America as the new Israel and then of the Jews returning and restoring Israel is deeply, deeply rooted in, in American history for Christians. Mm. It's deeply rooted. There's a, the analogy is very deep. And one of the reasons I think it's so, it's not just that APAC has used, spends a lot of money, although of course they do. It's also that in a, in a fundamental way, especially for conservative and people in the Republican Party, to challenge Israel's narrative is in a way actually to challenge our own now. Mm -hmm. It's actually to ask extremely uncomfortable questions because we are a settler colony, right? We, were, we actually succeeded in the destruction, we are far beyond what Israel has done. Israel has not yet done to the to the Palestinians what America did to its native population. And that's why, you know, it starts, the changing the discourse starts with allowing Palestinians to speak for themselves. Edward Said famously said that Palestinians lack permission to narrate. Up until very recently, you very you heard a lot of discussion about Palestinians, but rarely from Palestinians. One of the benefits of Black Lives Matter and of the Me Too movement is it is it has created, I think, a little bit more 
discomfort in the mainstream media about always talking about Palestinians and never listening to Palestinians, but we're still in early days of that fundamental transition. And then the conversation has to be bring in a lot more people who can challenge these fundamental narratives because they are because they have more distance from them based on their own experience. And I think that's going to be what's what's required to make this fundamental fundamental transition. You know, you're talking about. If I this, may add yeah, please. To Daniel, you know, Daniel, I don't know if you went to East Jerusalem, uh, to um, the old city of East Jerusalem. There's an African Palestinian neighborhood, and and it's my my people, my community who came there from from the 12th century, and there we are all black. You know, our families, you know, our you know, our grandfathers came from. All, all, you know, from Africa and established themselves and lived there since the 12th century and married Palestinians, etc. So, our neighborhood in East Jerusalem is very close to the Aqsa Mosque and very close to the Wailing Wall. So, we have two, one entrance to the neighborhood, and the entrance of the neighborhood we have two checkpoints in East Jerusalem of soldiers standing there. Mm -hmm. And every time I go to visit my my cousins in the old city. There's one soldier or another that would call me the N-word, either me or my family. And I asked my and I I I, I asked my my friends who still live there and my cousins, I'm like, is this normal? Or it's like said every day mm. they call them kushim, kushkush, and all kind of insulting slurs. And and I thought, okay, uh, you know, some ignorant soldiers or whatever. And then once I was exiting, I listened to his accent and I asked the soldier, where are you from originally? And I could hear that he was not, his Jewish and his Hebrew is actually not an Israeli Hebrew, it's not Jewish. And then he told me where he was from. I, I figured it out after like, you know, but also he said it, he's from Georgia, fine. So the fact that that we are, you know, Israel wants to have people from around the world coming there and becoming citizens and whatever. But but if you bring them there with this idea that we are, you know, we are, you know, this nation is open for everybody except Palestinians. And then you come to the United States and brag or the European Union and brag about your democracy. And in the name of your democracy, you want funding. This is a narrative that needs to be dismantled at its core and needs to be dismantled not only with these racist rhetoric with the racist laws that were passed every day. I mean, in 2014, I wrote about 50 racist laws that have been implemented and being passed in Israel. Today, we have hundreds of racist laws. People like you and me and Waj who look different, who sound different, who come from a different background, and we have no place. Hakeem Jeffrey, if he'd lived there, he would not be allowed to live in certain neighborhoods and certain areas. Mm -hmm. He would be denied to, to, to rent or access certain things if he looked like Hakeem Jeffrey, because you if have you put a kufi, if, you, if we put a kufi on Hakeem Jeffries and a thaw. Thank you. So before he defends this kind of ethno-nationalism, he needs to ask himself, would he and his children be accepted there? Would he ever want to live there while his children go out and being called the N-word day in and day out by officials of the state? I mean, I think these kind of mm. narratives need to be dismantled and these people need to be challenged if they would live in that system and why would they endorse and finance and bankroll that system? You know, talking about disrupting the narrative, uh, we were talking about this briefly. I think all of us have experiences. 
uh, if you're a person of color, especially, but if, if you're Muslim or Arab, and it doesn't matter because they blend us all together. If you're Muslim, yeah. Palestinian or Arab growing up in this country uh, of a certain age, and, and you wrote about what's happening in Israel, and you use word like the A word, or you used even the O word occupation. Uh, and you were, you found out very quickly, especially in college onward, that uh, there were potential consequences. And there's a chilling effect where people to this day tell me, hey, look what happened to X, Y, and Z. You're too valuable. Don't talk about it. Don't say, there was a Palestinian yeah. who told me, don't use the A word. I'm like, but I'm talking about what's happening in the occupied territories. He goes, don't use the A word. But I'm talking about what's happening in Hebron. He goes, I'm telling you, if you would just have to use the A word on live television, your career is You over. will be canceled. Yeah, yep. you'll be canceled. And so I say this because we're witnessing something now where the talking points, if you will, that we were saying for years are now being echoed by some of the staunchest defenders of Israel. So Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, Martin Indyk of Brookings, even Ambassador Kurtzer used to be the ambassador. These are the people now, Peter and Rula, who are saying, you know what? If Israel continues on its path, United States as its greatest ally should try to correct the behavior by not funding it. And I'm sitting there thinking, what am I listening to? Like, I what? Ambassador Kurtzer saying this? Martin Indyk? Thomas Friedman? This is the stuff that we were saying, and we were seen as radicals and crazy people. So there's a part of me now, we're talking about disrupting the narrative, and I want to ask uh, uh, Peter and Rula this. The fact that there is Jewish Americans uh, of, uh, uh, in the mainstream who have the ear of the Biden administration, they are saying things that got all of us canceled at one point or another in our life. Is this a turning point, Peter? And especially when you see Jewish Americans, like you said, young Jewish Americans, when you look at the poll and the data, young Jewish Democrats are more pro-Palestinian, like a majority of them are more pro-Palestinian. This has happened like within 10 years. There's a remarkable shift. It, it, are we seeing this shift where the talking points that we have often said, but we are readily dismissed as being, you know, you know what they call us. Uh, the fact that it's coming out of the mouths of the old-time establishment uh, Jewish Americans, are we going to see a pivot point, or is there hope for a pivot point in the next two years? Yeah, you know, it creates a strange, I feel often, this odd dilemma, because I have a privilege in this debate, which is unearned. I mean, right? I mean, I have equities in Israel-Palestine, but so does Rula, so does any American who who pays tax dollars, right? And yet I have more, it, it's harder to demonize me. Um, and 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 I'm in I'm I'm given a status that that I haven't really earned. So the question for someone like me, I think, is, which I don't always know quite how to how to handle, is how do I use that in order to try to ultimately create a debate where it no longer exists? Um, um, and I think that in terms of um, American politics, what's strange is that there's a cultural shift that's taking place inside the Democratic Party. But because American politics isn't all that democratic, we know that politicians can, can remain very insulated from public opinion on a whole range of issues. I mean, look at gun control, right? I mean, and many others, right? So there is now a vast gap between where Democratic Party politicians in Congress are and where ordinary Democrats are as reflected in public opinion. And I think to some degree where even the media narrative has moved. But in a situation where we have essentially an unregulated campaign finance system, 
where you can basically go into Democratic primaries and scare the hell out of any Democrat who is even considering saying something humane about Palestinians, that, that you can essentially wall off Washington from the opinion of ordinary Democrats, especially because this is not the most important voting issue for most ordinary Democrats, right? It's easier to remain insulated when it's not first people's number one, two or three issue. We don't, I think, yet have the organizational capacity that has been built that can ultimately protect politicians of conscience who want to actually follow, the, who simply want to apply the same moral standard to this issue that they apply to other issues. And politicians are generally, with a few exceptions, like, like let's say Rashida Tlaib and a few others, most politicians are basically will not do the right thing if they feel like it's going to imperil their political career. So we still haven't built the political power to be able to be able to tell those people, you can do the right thing and it and you won't cost your career. That's the next frontier. If I may, Waj and and and, and Peter, I think in the next couple of years, and I think less, I predict there will be mass violence, serious mass violence in Palestine. Mm. Um, I, I think the events on the ground very often when it comes to Israel Palestine helped reshape and change the narrative and impose a different narrative because I, I will always remember the 2014 war. Um, Ayman in Gaza covering those kids playing on the beach. Uh, yeah. Basically, a plane come, killed them. Uh, and then the lies about, oh, we didn't know what they were, whatever. And then the lies, you see it with Shirin Abu Akleh, where a sniper who is looking behind, you know, his, and then shoot her. And then they try to cover it up with lies. So we have, it's incumbent on us to expose those lies, this this propaganda, and dismantle it. And for the first time, I see the media are willing to take on, especially after Shirin Abakli, five different investigations by Washington Post, by CNN, Al Jazeera, and others, expose actually and dismantle the lies. And they were held by NGOs, B'Tselem, and others on the ground. For the first time, I think it is obvious, it's clear, uh, to many of us that we cannot anymore, you know, believe what comes out from, you know, official Israel. We will have to examine it. We are applying on them what we would apply on any other government. And I think I think for the first time you are seeing a little bit of pushback, but this pushback is not translated into a political, um, you know, to political somehow translated into a real political action. Because so far, you know, Rashida Tlaib is seen as an extremist, as, as a, you know, as a radical. When she, what she's saying is many Israelis, including politicians, are saying even worse than this. I mean, we have the former head of the Mossad saying what we're doing in the West Bank and the occupied territories is equivalent to what the clans did in America. He's comparing... It was Jewish like two weeks ago. Yeah. Two weeks ago, you're seeing Ehud Olmert, former, uh, you know, former prime minister, saying basically we're we're becoming a fascist state. You're seeing a former head of Mossad, I believe, saying these people are so extremist they they want basically to implement here a genocidal vision, and it's going to hunt all of us and hurt all of us. I mean, you're seeing people saying by far worse than what Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and AOC, but these people are not invited to speak here, 
publicly on national television. And whenever Netanyahu speaks, you can see that he's not willing to speak to the Israeli media, but he's willing to speak to an American media that is not versed enough into the details of what he's trying to do. So he's willing to lie his way. I mean, what Bloomberg did two days ago is like, basically was a flat lie when they, you know, released, uh, you know, uh, basically a transcript of an interview. And, and the title was, he's not, he's going to hold back on his coup. It's not true. It's a flat lie. But they, they were willing to recycle his propaganda and, because for so long, that was the main dominant narrative that a lot of people were unwilling to question. Today, we're seeing a lot of people that are willing to question it. But I don't think we're, we're, we're enough. I mean, there's not big numbers of us who are willing to question that narrative. I am proud of the price that we all paid for standing to democracy. We're yeah. not fighting for one group or another. We're standing for a vision, a humanist vision of the world that is a multiracial, multicultural democracy where any of us, whether you're Jews or Black or Muslim or Latino, whatever, is treated with dignity and respect. And I think this is the narrative that needs to be, it's not being pro-Palestinian, it's, it's being pro-human being, pro-dignity, pro-the rule of law. And I think this is part of the conversation. I would stand for my Jewish friends in the streets, they're my family. But I think the other side, and we need to describe this clearly, the camp, the Netanyahu and Trump camp, divide the world of us versus them. And the only way these people I mean, when Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about killing and, and endorsing killing of the opponents and the opposition, this is, she's speaking exactly like Ben Veer. We need to start making these analogies to understand the real project of both sides. You know, we, we ran out of time uh, and, and we kept you longer because it's such a rich conversation. And uh, my producer is like, oh, maybe we should wrap up right now. That was a great place to wrap up. But I have to, I have to indulge me if you can, Danielle and Q. I have to mention this because you guys have brought this up. And, and this is a quick final question, if you don't mind. You talked about the multiracial democracy. And for years, Peter and Rula and, and Danielle, we saw the writing on the wall. And we saw that anti-Semitism would rise with the rise of white nationalism and fascism. And I remember I went to Florida right before the election of Trump and, and a synagogue invited me. And this was when he went after Muslims and undocumented immigrants, and they were progressive on everything they said except uh, Palestine. And they told me I was their first Muslim speaker. And I told them, I said, they're going after black people, Muslims, and undocumented immigrants. Who do you think they're going to go after next? And I wish you all could see their faces because they were looking around like, us? And I said, that train's never late in America and in Europe. And the final question that I have is, and, and anti-Semitism is real. It's, it's now mainstream, thanks to the GOP. Uh, it's literally radicalizing terrorists to commit murder against Hispanics in El Paso, against Muslims in Churchland, against Jews in Tree of Life Synagogue, uh, against black folks. Uh, final question, and, and, and indulge me real quick. The pitch that you can make to Americans, especially Jewish Americans around the fence, even Palestinians who might have given up on this multiracial democracy, that this is the moment we have to come together because the enemy that's coming after all of us is Thanos, which is white supremacy. And they're using this to divide and conquer all of us. Peter and Rula. Yes. I mean, the argument that I make to, to my fellow Jews is that 
a world of ethno-nationalist country um, is a world in which all Jews who do not live in Israel are considered not genuine citizens of the country in which they live. Um, and that's a terrifying world for a Jew if you live in the United States or if you live in Europe or if you live in somewhere else. Um, and so, and that Israel is exporting this ethno-nationalism, that Israel is in some ways the thriving model for people like Narendra Modi. Look yes. at what Modi is trying to do on a vast scale, the biggest country in the world, trying to turn a secular democracy into a Hindu nationalist state. This is a very, very dangerous political trend that is terrible for anyone who is not of the dominant tribe in their in their country. And ultimately, it's not even good if you're in the dominant tribe, because as I said, the violence you inflict comes back to you. And that's why, as you said, I think what we need to do is is, is struggle for the principle that all people deserve to be treated equally under the law, irrespective of their race, religion, ethnicity, gender, no matter what country in which they live. And that allows us to form bonds to uh, across communities, across religions and races, across nations. And we have to create that political power to oppose the people who are uniting on the other side, the Donald Trumps, the Narendra Modi's, the Benjamin Netanyahu's, the Viktor Orban's, because they are they have united in defense of this principle of ethno-nationalism, which will be a much, much more vicious world than anything that we have seen. I totally agree with Peter. And I want to remind everybody, Primo Levi, an Italian Jew who was deported to Auschwitz, came back and wrote this wonderful book, If This Is a Man. and he wrote indirectly about his experience in Auschwitz, but he wrote that he will always be seen as a Jew in Italy, a country that he is born in, a citizen of that country. He said, I will always be seen as a Jew. And, and, and he, was, he pointed to ethno-national as the real poison, the real threat to his life and to life of minorities, but also to democracy itself, because it was clear that Mussolini's vision, which is today still carried by Meloni, Miranda Modi and Donald Trump and others. It's a vision that will basically create a tribe and you defend that tribe. And even the people who are critical of that tribe, they will go after them as well, even if they belong to that tribe. It doesn't matter. You cannot question the party. You have to be blind to what the party says or to the leader, or whatever. And I think that ethno-nationalists succeed in doing this coalition that aid and abet each other. This is the one thing that Democrats around the world or pro- uh, multiracial democracy still struggling to do is build this massive coalition that that coalition elected Biden in 2020. People, some people did not trust that white Americans would not deliver Trump again. So we created this coalition of Jews, Muslim, gays, minorities, everybody that understood that the threat was Donald Trump and accepted Biden and Kamala Harris that coalition is what saved democracy in America. But we need to export that coalition internationally and expand it. When, when, when President Biden, with all due respect, hosts Narendra Modi and honor him, he's basically telling you know people who are fighting for the soul of democracy in India, well, you know, you know, wait because there's other things that are more relevant, the economy or another thing. They're, they're not more relevant. There will be no economy without democracy. Okay, so when we are trying now to convince the Saudi to normalize with Israel, despite what this government is doing, we're telling people who are truly fighting for democracy in Israel and in Palestine, 
well, step aside, there's other consideration. We need to save democracy everywhere because mm -hmm. sooner or later, people will try to import it elsewhere. And these forces are thriving on our division and our confusion about our lack of attempt to create a real coalition that stand up for the rule of law and for these forces, whether it's in Ukraine or in Palestine. I, you know, I, I want to say that I cannot thank the both of you enough for giving us such a rich and deep and important conversation that I see as a conversation about liberation. Um, it isn't just a conversation about uh, Israel and Palestine or about just about the United States or just about India or Ukraine and Russia. It is about global liberation and what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to fight for freedom regardless of who you are? right? Whether you are Black, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Jewish, whether you're a woman, whether you're trans, um, it is about liberation. And we have to ask ourselves with our money, right? Who, are we fighting for liberation or are we fighting for oppression? And that, that to me is one of the fundamental, fundamental questions. So I just want to thank uh, the both of you for making the time to join Democracy-ish. Um, Thank you all for listening to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. I'm Ajahat Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. Inshallah.